recently at a zoo in Southeast Asia, a man was smoking a cigarette, which I guess is permissible at that particular zoo. He took the cigarette, half lit, and threw it into one of the animal enclosures, and an orangutan swooped down, picked it up, and began to smoke it. I don't know if you saw this in the news. It was, of course, recorded on video and posted on the internet. And over a million people have now signed a petition to have the zoo completely shut down over this. Now, I've been saying for years, we've got to get cigarettes out of the hands of monkeys. And no one will listen. It's a huge problem. This is what scholars are now referring to as a culture of outrage that there is the potential for anything and everything to to bombard us as an outrageous thing that we ought to care about and give our lives to in order to prevent it, right? Now, there are certain things that are outrageous, that are cruel and wrong and unjust, and of course, outrage is a God-given emotion. Some things are supposed to bother us and, and bring us to action, but we've, it's, it seems like as a culture, we're losing our sense of where the line is drawn as to what things we really should and, and ought to care about because there's a million things every day. If it's not this orangutan smoking a cigarette today, it's going to be something else tomorrow. And you know that that's true. What, what it does to me, at least, is it creates in me a sense of paranoia. Like, what can I actually say that's not going to offend someone or create outrage? Every time I think something that I want to maybe put on Facebook or Twitter, typically I check with my wife first. Because I, I'm one of these people. I don't want to offend anybody, if at all possible. I just, I'm, just, I'm scared to death of, of people not liking me or people being against me. But that's the culture that we find ourselves in today. Now, here's the truth. To be a Christian is to build your entire life on something pretty outrageous. You may be the kind of person you don't like to cause offense, but at the foundation of what we believe is something genuinely controversial, when the early church uh, began to go out into the Roman Empire and, and spread this message, proclaim this message of a Savior who had been crucified and then had risen from the grave, that was about the most outrageous and offensive message that these people in Rome had ever heard. That's why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians says, uh, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who do not believe us. Yet to those of us who are being saved, it's the power of God. And that's what makes all the difference. If you disbelieve it, it's a foolish message, an outrageous, offensive message. But if you believe it, of course, he says, then we are being saved and it's God's power to save us. So at the, at the, the root of Christianity, to be a Christian is not to say, I'm going to try to be a good, loving, decent person. I'm going to try my best to obey God's laws. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the heart of Christianity is to say, I worship and I follow a crucified Savior, and there's no way around it. That's a controversial message. That's a hard message for people to believe, and it's a hard message for people to stomach. But once we are willing to enter into that outrage, when we're, when we're willing to enter into the, the unbelievability of Christianity, that's where we actually find the beauty and the glory of all that God came to do for us. So in a sense, we have to enter into it if we're going to see all that God does for us through it. And uh, we've been walking through 1 Peter these last several weeks, and we'll continue to after Easter. But today I want us to look at Isaiah 53 to see uh, more clearly 
what I'm talking about. Isaiah chapter 53, probably toward the middle of your Bible. Uh, look it up on your phone if you can find your way there. Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, today is Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is the day that we celebrate that Jesus entered into Jerusalem for the final week of his life. Very famous story. He entered in on the, the back of a donkey. People laid palm leaves down on the road and said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Many people celebrated the coming of Christ into Jerusalem. Only a few days later, he would be condemned in a mock trial. He would be crucified on a cross. And then, of course, on Easter Sunday, he's raised from the dead. This is a significant week as we celebrate it in the church. And so I wanted us to look today at Isaiah 53, which prefigures, it's a, a prophecy written in advance of what Jesus was going to go through and the kind of person he was going to reveal himself to us as. And it's important for us to recognize this. Isaiah is writing this, these words about 700 years before Jesus ever came to the earth, before he was born. 700 years. And yet what Isaiah gives to us today is a perfect and vivid picture of Jesus, both who he is and what he came to do. Um, we're going to look at, at just the first six verses of this chapter, but we're going to look at it from two different angles. I mentioned them before. We're going to look at the offense of Jesus first, and then we're going to look at the beauty and the glory of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. So look with me at Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. The prophet writes, "'Who has believed our message?' And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, this is Jesus, this is the Savior, for he grew up before him, God the Father, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. The offense of Jesus. The thought of God becoming a man is a deeply offensive belief to begin with. Most religious people in the world today scoff at that idea. The thought that God in his glory, in his purity, in his holiness would humiliate himself like that. No, God could never become a person like us. But even if we would concede, and of course the Christians do concede, we, more, we do more than concede that God could become a man, we believe that he did. And if you said, okay, well, I got, okay, God could become a man, perhaps, even still, we wouldn't have expected him to come like this. We would not have expected God to, to do what he did in the person of Jesus, what, what Isaiah reveals to us, a, a man of sorrows, despised by men, nothing about him that we would be attracted to him. See, it's no secret that human beings, we, we by nature are infatuated, we're attracted to power and wealth and beauty and fame. You might, not, you might be more righteous than me. You might not be like that, but I'm, I'm like that. I sat, one day I sat on an airplane two rows behind the actor Bill Murray, two rows in front of me. And for three hours on that airplane, all I did was think about something clever that I could say to him, perhaps, if we shook hands. And then I saw him at the baggage claim, and I said, hey, I'm a big fan. That's the best I could do. 
I, it's all I could think about the whole flight. I'm, I, I was infatuated. It's Bill Murray, Groundhog Day, Ghostbusters, Bill Murray. Right? That's the way that we are. We just we have this natural. That's why generally famous, wealthy people are the object of our attraction. We just love them. We want to be like them. We want to get to know them. We wish we could be part of their lives just to know them and spend time with them, right? And yet in the midst of that, that human heart reality, the Son of God comes into the world and there was nothing attractive about him. And Isaiah Isaiah goes over the top to explain this to us. There was nothing about Jesus that would draw us to him. In fact, it was quite the opposite. If you look back at verse 3, he was despised, he was forsaken of men. Everywhere he went, Jesus had people plotting against him, seeking to trap him, to trick him, to deceive him, uh, to condemn him, and ultimately to kill him. Many times before Jesus was actually crucified, people plotted and made effort to kill him. His own people, his own hometown of Nazareth, they tried to throw him off a cliff early in in the book of Luke. He spent a good bit of his ministry homeless. Uh, The day that Jesus died, everything he owned, he was wearing on his back, and even that was stripped away from him and stolen. Um, If it's possible for us to take our Christian glasses off for just a minute and recognize how, how outrageous this is, how offensive this is. I mean, how many of you have heroes Heroes in your life, heroes on the screen who are unattractive, impoverished, who are despised of men. They've got a list of enemies a mile long. Do you have a lot of heroes in your life that fit that description? How many uh, of your heroes have been killed by the government as criminals? You probably don't have a very long list, right, if you think about it like that. In the first century, one of the clever ways that Christians were mocked by their enemies Uh, The enemies of of the faith had a drawing of a man hanging on a cross with the head of a donkey. This is what we think of you who follow this crucified man. Um, Isaiah makes it clear that Jesus did not come in the form or fashion that we would have chosen, that would be to our liking, that we would be attracted to him. And therefore, Jesus, he offends our concepts of power and glory and beauty. He came that way on purpose. It may be hard for us to stomach. He's not much of a hero in the traditional sense. And then he also offends our pride. Look at verse 4 now. Isaiah writes, Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. And he was, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of his well-being, of our well-being, fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Uh, typically, when a criminal is executed by the state, It is for his own crimes, and that only makes logical sense, right? But Isaiah is pointing us to a man who was executed not for his own sins, despite what people may have said about him. He was killed for our sins, for our crimes. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And again, if you've been a Christian for a long time, um, it's easy maybe to forget how offensive that idea really is. 
For God to send Jesus into the world is a statement about my weakness and incompetence. Someone had to come for me instead of me. My good, good deeds, my life of my own efforts is not good enough for God to accept me into heaven. And therefore, someone had to come and live a life and die a death in my place. That's the, that's the Christian message. That offends our pride, doesn't it? That no matter, there's nothing I can do to change that fact about me. I cannot live up to God's perfect standard. It can't be done. Even in our present culture, that was, it's always been an offensive message. It was offensive in the first century when people first began to hear it. It's offensive to modern-day America. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a product, like most of us, of modern American cultural values. The highest value in our culture is the self, self-realization, self-discovery, the idea being that if, if, I, if you can just harness who you really are, who you really want to be, and then assert that over and against anybody else. Nobody can tell you who you are, who you ought to be, or what you can do or can't do. If you will assert yourself, then you can be your best self and you can achieve all your dreams, right? That's the American ethic. And that, to many people, is a very noble thing, right? But then, see, we come to Isaiah 53, 6. Look at verse 6 again. All of us like sheep have gone astray. All of us regardless of culture or of generation, regardless of how noble I think I am or I try to be. All of us have gone our own way. This, the, no matter how hard we try, no matter what we give our lives to, at the end of the day, we cannot make ourselves acceptable to God. Someone has to do that for you. And that is a death blow to our pride. That is a controversial, controversial message. If, if, you, if you've been a Christian a long time, maybe, maybe we've we just gotten so used to it, we, we take it for granted. But, it, man, it hurts to think that I don't have what it takes. Jesus had to do it for me. That might be why, uh, years ago, the billionaire Ted Turner uh, said, Christianity is for losers. That was, that was his, his estimation of our faith. That little soundbite. Christianity is for losers. And I think the reason he came to that conclusion is because the message of Christianity says to a man like Ted Turner the same thing it says to me. All of your wealth, all of your achievement, all of your popularity comes to nothing in the end. It will not get you to God. Someone else has to do it for you. That's the message of the Christian faith. That's hard to stomach. Do we see how offensive this is? Maybe this is an old message. You've heard it a thousand times, but it, it is a... It, it is like steel wool to our nature. It's abrasive. Uh, and neither, uh, you know, Isaiah doesn't try to, to dress it up. He doesn't try to hide it. Jesus didn't try to hide it when he called people to follow him. He told us that it would, it would be difficult. And so we have a message here that's, that's, that can be hard to accept. It runs against our nature. But I said this before, when we actually enter into it, when we see it for what it is, we are opened up, God can open our eyes to the absolute beauty and glory of this message. On one side, it offends my nature, it's difficult to accept, but when we enter into it, we find that it's the most precious thing uh, in all the universe. It's the best news that's ever been delivered to us. And so let's look at the same six verses now from that perspective. Okay? We see it in, in terms of just the, the, the two-dimensional human way here, but let's look at it from God's perspective and from the perspective of those now who have faith. Remember, Paul said, it's foolishness to those who disregard it, but it's the power of God to those who receive it. And here's why. Verse 2. Look in the middle of verse 2. He, Jesus, 
has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face. Jesus was despised, and we did not esteem him. Uh, Most of you have probably seen Disney's Aladdin, the cartoon, where at one point, in order to impress the princess, Aladdin wishes from the genie that he could become a prince. And it's this grand spectacle. His wish is granted. He rides in on an elephant, Prince Ali. A song accompanies him. Everybody in in the empire is head over heels impressed with Prince Ali, except, if you remember, the one person he was trying to impress. The princess is watching this spectacle unfold, and in disgust, she throws her hand and walks away. His attempt at glory ultimately fell flat. You realize that Jesus did the exact opposite. Jesus, who actually had all glory, Jesus who created the universe, the Son of God, rather than coming and expressing the glory that he actually already had, He humbled himself. Philippians 2 said he emptied himself and took on the form of a bondservant. Jesus did not come to impress us, although he could have done it easily, simply by revealing who he really was, the heavenly Son of God. But he came to us with dirt on his feet. He came to us not to impress us. He came to save us. And he came to save us as one of us. That's the whole message here. He came to save you as one of you. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, if you want to get the hang of this idea, try to just imagine yourself becoming a slug. Losing, in a sense, forsaking all of what makes you glorious, all of what makes you worthy and, and, uh, and estimable in the eyes of others and becoming something that, that is, in a sense, disgusting, that's forsaken. That's how we get the hang of it. Whereas on the surface, it may offend us to think of a God doing that. God can't do that. But if we're willing to accept it, we actually find out what he came to do, why he came the way he did. And uh, you don't need to turn to Hebrews 2, but in Hebrews 2, there's this great verse that says, Jesus had to be made like his brethren, in all things. He had to be made like us in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. The high priest is the one who mediates between God and people. He stands between us on our behalf, and he might make propitiation, atoning sacrifice, for the sins of the people. Hebrews 2. Could God have saved us from far away? Could God have winked his eye or waved his hand and saved you? God can do anything, but he chose to save us up close. He chose to save you face to face. Only through humbly taking on flesh and blood could Jesus do that because he had to come and take your place. God doesn't want to save you vicariously, okay, separately. He came to do it face to face. He came to take your place. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said it like this. As a father feels for his children uh, because they are of the same flesh and blood, so does the Lord sympathize with his people, for they are members of his body, of his flesh, of his bones. No father can can be so thoroughly one with his offspring as Jesus is with us. He came to be one of us. Now, what does it mean practically? 
that Jesus came for us. Hebrews tells us uh, theologically why he came. He came to be our high priest. He came to take our place. But just very practically, when, when Isaiah tells us that Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, despised by men, we esteemed him stricken by God. We thought he was the bad guy. Um, here's what it means for you, very practically. Have you ever been rejected? So was he. Have you ever been hated or mocked or betrayed? So was he. Have you ever felt totally alone? So did he. Have you ever grieved so hard that it physically hurt? So did he. Everything that you have been through, Jesus Christ has known it, and he's known it to the full. If God had saved us from far away, up in an ivory tower, as it were, you could still go to heaven, perhaps, but you couldn't know him. And in Jesus Christ, we can know God, really know him, not just know about him, not just have the rules to follow in order to earn our way up to him, but we can know him face to face. The poor can know him just as the rich can. The prisoner can know him just as the free man. Black and white, conservative and liberal, powerless, powerful, it doesn't matter. You can know Jesus Christ, and therefore you can know God, because he came for us. He came for us. And when we come to recognize that, the beauty of that, his coming to be one of us, we also see the beauty and the glory of what he's done for us. Look again at verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. What Isaiah tells us next is that Jesus did not come to earth only to better relate to us. That would be a noble thing on God's part, but it wouldn't be enough to save us. Isaiah says he came to take our place. He came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was pierced through for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Basically, all religious people would, would gladly acknowledge that it is God's job to punish evil. He is the only true righteous judge in the universe. He punishes evil that's his job. That's what he does. And ultimately, he will. Almost across the spectrum, religions agree with that. But what kind of God takes on that punishment for evil himself? What, what kind of God looks upon the world he created, us in our sinful and helpless condition, and he takes that upon himself in order that he might do away with it? That's the, that's the unique beauty and glory of the Christian faith. Not just that God will punish evil, yes, but he's punished it in his own son so that we might not stand before him uh, in judgment, but, but that we might have his grace instead. I heard about, uh, a pastor shared this story a couple of days ago. It really, it's, it's a simple story, but it brought this home for me, uh, of a woman that was in his church 
And she was the kind of person that would come in late and leave early. She, it's, it's clear that she didn't really want to interact with people. And he noticed this for a few weeks. And so finally, one Sunday, he managed to, to kind of catch her before she got out the door. And he just wanted to ask her who she was, get to know her a little bit. And the first thing she said very bluntly to the pastor, she said, now, I don't know if I believe any of this. Uh, he said, well, okay, well, well how, I mean, how'd you find out about our church? And she proceeds to tell him this story. This was a, a young woman, very ambitious, uh, in, a, in a corporate ladder-climbing kind of position. She had very high aspirations to be an executive, and so she was, as a young woman, now working her way up the ladder. But uh, she had recently made a really terrible mistake, the kind of decision that would not only have gotten her fired, but could have actually ended her career. No more ladder climbing for her. And of course, she assumed that she was on the chopping block immediately, but then her boss, whom she really barely knew, her boss went to bat for her. He went before the board, he went before corporate, and he took the fall. This is a man who said, listen, I didn't train her well enough. Uh, this, I, I, I didn't put her in the position she needed to be in to, to succeed. This one's on me. Now, her boss had great credibility in the industry, and so he didn't get fired, but he took a hit. His credibility took a hit on her behalf. And after all this has happened, this woman is absolutely flabbergasted. A man she really barely knows who has nothing to gain from this has now taken the blame for her. So she goes into his office, one, to thank him, but also to demand an explanation. She's kind of concerned, frankly, that he wants something from her and that this is blackmail. She goes in to tell him thank you, and he kind of, you know, he just graciously kind of brushes her off. Sure, you're welcome. She says, why would you do this? She said, I, I've, had, I've had bosses take the credit for the good I've done before. I've never had one take the blame for me. Why would you do this? And he stammered a little bit, and she demanded. She said, no, tell me why you would do this. What do you want? And her boss said, well, <laughs> listen, I'm a Christian, and my entire life is based on someone else who took the blame for me, someone who took the fall so that I might uh, not uh, receive the punishment that I deserve. And uh, now this woman was at her boss's church, <laughs> trying to figure out this thing called grace. She couldn't understand it, but now she's been the beneficiary of it. Now, was there a biblical command that told her boss he had to do that? I'm not aware of one. He wasn't either. He was simply living out the best he knew how, what had been done for him, what had been given to him. And see, this is the beauty of what we call the gospel. Any of us can do this. The good news of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Jesus did share in our struggles and our pain. Yes, but that's only half the story. There's one thing he didn't share in that we have to be really clear on. He didn't share in our sin. He shared in everything just like us, yet without sin. Uh, remember what Isaiah said earlier. We esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. We assumed that because he died on a cross, it must have been for his own crimes. And yet he was crushed for our iniquities, Isaiah says. That Jesus Christ was the perfect man. He could not die for his own sins. He had none to die for. But he could die for yours because he was the perfect man, the divine son of God. He fulfilled everything God required of us perfectly, not just externally, but internally from the heart. Jesus did it all. And he gives that life to you. And he dies the death, the, the sinner's death, the death of penalty for you. Everything that Jesus is, is now accounted to you as a gift of faith. 
as a gift of grace, not something you earn, something that we receive. And so listen, the stunning message of the gospel is not just that Jesus loves you and wants to encourage you and pick you up when you're down. He does that. The stunning message, that's, see, that's not very controversial, though, that God loves you and, and wants a good life for you. A few people would argue against that. But that Jesus would come to bear the penalty for our sins, that Jesus would come to take our place. That's the stunning reality of grace. That's why Isaiah said in verse 6, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. My sin falls on him, given to him, punished in him, that I might have grace. And the same is true for us. See, when the beauty and the glory of that kind of grace really hits us, it's, it's kind of like trying to stare into the sun. It's not something we can do. It's not something that we can take in. And, and for us, it takes going through the abrasion, right? Going through the difficulty. It offends my nature. It, it, it lowers me and forces me to admit a great need. But if I'm willing to see through that, I get to the place of the amazing grace of Jesus Christ. That he came so humbly that the world didn't even recognize him. And when, he, and when he died on the cross, he died for a world that had rejected him. That's how deep and rich the love of God for us is. There is no message like this. The world is full of good advice, but the world is not full of good news. This is the true good news. What has been accomplished already on our behalf because God loved us that much. Um, you may have noticed this as we close. I mentioned that Isaiah has written this, this message to us. 700 years before it happened. 700 years before Jesus ever came on the scene. That's why it's called prophecy. He's foretelling what is to come. And yet maybe you notice this, that Isaiah writes everything here in what's called the perfect tense. He writes it as if it's already happened. He does not write it future tense like we would. He writes it as if it's as good as done. Uh, it had not occurred yet in time and place, but what the point here is that in the mind and heart of God, it was done. That God had, God had inclined his heart to you before there was a you to begin with. God had, had um, resolved to save you before there was a you that needed saving, before you'd done anything right or wrong to begin with. This is, this is as good as done long before it came to pass. We do live in a world of outrage. I don't think there's any argument against that. But the standard is constantly changing, right? I said this before. If it's, if it's a monkey smoking a cigarette today, tomorrow it's going to be something different. Some things truly are outrageous and we ought to care. Uh, but a lot of stuff just clouds us from seeing what really matters, doesn't it? That's the culture that we now live in. But see, at the core of who we are as Christians, and we've got to understand this, uh, what we believe, who we are, what we stand on, how we build our lives, is we build our lives on something that is truly outrageous. It always has been. People don't get over it and, oh, you know, now it's yesterday's news. The gospel still offends. It still runs against what I want to believe about myself. I want to believe I'm good enough for God to love me just the way I am. But the scripture says that God does love me, and because he loves me, he sends someone for me who can do what I can't do. And that's the message that we, uh, that we celebrate. It's glorious to us who have received us. So here's, here's the truth. 
there's a God who humiliated himself for you, who conformed, and rather than saying, here's the rules, obey them and earn your way to me, you conform to me, God conformed to you. He made himself humble for you. He carried the cross for you. He saves you apart from any good thing that you can do. That's outrageous because it busts our assumptions about God. We don't think God could be humble, and yet here he is in the person of Jesus. It busts our assumptions uh, about, uh, about who we are and what we're capable of. It runs against our pride. It's outrageous because it forces us to put all of our hope, all of our weight onto someone else. It, that, that's difficult, perhaps, but it's glorious for the same reasons. It's beautiful for the same reasons that God would humiliate himself in order to save you. He would carry a cross that he had not earned, but that we had earned and he took it from us. That he would uh, save us apart from anything that we can do, whether good or bad. It's beautiful for the same reasons. And when we look into it and see it for what it is, Paul says it's the power of God to save us. C.S. Lewis said, The Son of God became a man to enable sons of men, to, to enable men to become sons of God. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. That's our hope for Holy Week. That's our hope for all of life, that Jesus Christ would come as one of us in order to bear our sins for us and make us something that otherwise we could never be, Christians. And that's outrageous in the best possible way. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, would you bring this, this message home to our hearts? And Father, where it offends us, I pray that we would at least be willing to explore it. Um, I, there's so much about this message, that even though it's wonderful to me, it's, it's, still, it's still hard. It's, it's hard to think of you needing to come so humbly for me. It's hard, Lord, to think that, that you would have to bear my sins, that I, I, don't, I, don't, I can't bear them on my own. I can't compensate them for, for them on my own. You've got to do it. And so, Father, where that, where that is abrasive to us, I pray that we embrace that. That's, it's, it's meant to bring us low in order, Lord, that we might be brought high. And Jesus Christ came to do that, Father. Lord, you, we know this, that you, Lord, you, Father, could sit in, in an ivory tower and you could condemn us all day long and we would have no argument. You could point out every sin, every failure, every wrong motive. You could do that all day long. And yet, Father, what it means to, to know you is to know, Lord, that you did not remain in heaven far away, but you came to us that you took on flesh and blood, that you knew every sorrow and grief that we know, and that you took our place to save us. Father, if there, if there are, are those, of, those among us who, who, who maybe don't believe that or struggle to believe that, would you encourage us today? that this is not good advice on how we can improve. This is good news on what you have done that cannot be improved upon. It is perfect, and it is ours as a gift. Father, would we receive you by faith this morning? And even for those of us who have, have, have lived as Christians for a very long time, would we still receive it by faith this morning? 
that your mercies are new today, never worn out, never old news, but fresh and wonderful. Father, make our hearts to dwell on this astounding fact that 700 years prior, you spoke it into existence. You said this is how it will happen, and it worked out exactly as you said. And Lord, now, 2,000 years on the other side of the event, we can live in the absolute power and glory and beauty of it all. Father, uh, give us a gratitude in that that cannot, cannot be shaken because, Lord, it's found in Christ, our Savior. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.